Okay, friends, we're gonna start right on time. We're gonna have others trickling in and we know the high majority of our group always listens to recordings instead of live, but we are thrilled to start right on time with everyone who's here in the room for a new Valley Bait Madrash learning program, program, a sacred dialogue, the conversation between liturgy and poetry with Rabbi Hera Person, who I've gotten to know at CCAR uh, and beyond. I've just loved working with CCR Press and with her. And um, we're thrilled to be partnering today with our great partners, uh, Temple Solo. We welcome uh, Executive Director Peter Pishko and, uh, and, and also my dear friend, uh, Rabbi John Linder. And we're honored to have Rabbi Linder give our formal intro to start us off today. Thank you, Rabbi Linder. Yeah, my honor to do so. Uh, so here's the bio I've been given. I will read it. Uh, Rabbi Hera E. Person is the Chief Executive of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the former Chief Strategy Officer and publisher of the Central Conference of American Rabbis Press uh, that has published um, some of Rabbi Yanklowitz's books. Um, she is a 1998 ordinee of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, uh, holds a BA from our common alma mater, Amherst College and a MA in Fine Arts from uh, NYU's. Um, I'm not sure what ICP stands for, Rabbi uh, Person. Um, what does it stand for? It's International Center of Photography. It's a yeah, different I, institution, I, but they had a. Joint. I should know that. Um, and uh, and lives lives in uh, Brooklyn. And for a moment, Rabbi Yankowitz, I'm going to take a little executive uh, privilege to add to this ridiculously modest uh, bio of Rabbi Persons. Uh, first of all, uh, is important rabbi person is the first woman uh, uh, leader of the four main reform movement organizations, the Union for Reform Judaism, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, the Religious Action Center, and the CCAR. Um, that in itself is important, but I think sometimes rabbi person that gets a little lost in, um, forget about um, comparing uh, women leaders, men leaders, there has been no finer leader in our movement um, than you in any organization. And I think that's important uh, to note. And, um, and I had the um, honor to, um, after the first matzav uh, in, uh, in Israel, to travel on a uh, CCAR mission to Israel um, as the situation, the matzav was, uh, uh, was going. And, uh, and here's what I learned about you, additionally, Rabbi Person. Um, you can seamlessly move between Hebrew and English you are open and anxious to hear multiple voices. And, um, and you are just a beautifully compassionate human being. Um, so today, everyone, you'll get to experience Rabbi uh, Person as a scholar and a teacher, and just a blessing that I'm able to uh, um, also add my gratitude to be your friend. John, thank you, Rabbi Lynn. Thank you. That was like the most amazing intro ever. Thank you. I'm sorry my mother wasn't here to hear it. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm kind of blushing. Um, thank you. Um, hard to move on from there because I am, I am embarrassed, but um, so great to see you all and to be here today to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is um, prayer and poetry. And I'm hoping that we can really make this a conversation. It's gonna be really boring if only I'm talking. So um, if you're shy and you have your camera off, if there's any way I can encourage you to put your camera on and actually 
be part of the conversation, um, that would be great. Uh, but but I'm not going to force anybody. Um, so what I want to look at first is this is the really broad question of what is poetry, right? So I'm going to share a couple of ideas, and I'd love to hear some from you as well. So um, I think one definition of poetry is that it's a way to express the inexpressible, right? I often go to poetry. I love reading poetry, and I go to it often really because of that idea because I, I can't find words I can't find the right words to say what I want to say and poetry helps me do that and and it can sort of provide words to to that which is sort of ineffable um, I would say it's also a way to give shape using words to a feeling to an image to a yearning to a hope Poetry kind of gives us an allowance to use words creatively, not in the everyday way, in ways that often aren't right, but work. Um, and poetry is metaphor. Anyone want to add anything else? What, what do you think about when you think about poetry? You can't be shy because it's going to be really boring if you are. Pam. Um. I think it helps give a voice in a very different way when you feel like you don't have one or to express it in a manner that can mean multiple things to multiple people. So I like the ability that you can be seen but others can see what they choose to see. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Pam was very brave there. Rabbi Person, I, I would add, I, I've got a, a interest in and maybe you'll speak about it today uh, how um, uh, poetry could be connected to a natural image, a photograph, a piece of mm -hmm. art, um, and, and how that actually works reverse as well, where, mm -hmm. you, and, and I'm curious whether, you know, you and your own poetry have written poetry from an image. And I forget, there's a fancy name for that, and I forget what it is, uh, but um, anyway. Yeah. Um, that's a great question, and um, well, actually, that'll, that'll, that gives me a good sort of moment to digress. Um, you know, I think that this is, this is totally my personal commentary here, but I think that um, as Jews, we get metaphor. We're going to talk a lot more about this in a couple of minutes. Um, we, we get words, we get language, and I'm making a huge gross generalization here. But I think um, for some people, okay, you know, forget about as Jews, because that's actually not the relevant part of it. But I think as verbal people, um, it's easier to go to metaphor that's in language form than it is in image, in, in visual image. And some people, it's the opposite, for sure. I mean, we all have different brains and our, you know, different modalities of learning and so on. But really what I'm speaking about is a very specific experience that I had. Um, when we were creating the new reform or the High Holiday Prayer Book, which is called Mishkan Nefesh. We wanted to put art into the book, and we wanted to do something abstract. We didn't want um, we didn't want illustration. We didn't want art that sort of told people what to think or how to envision something. So, we looked for art that was very abstract and evocative. Essentially, in my mind, it was art that was poetry, but it was visual. And we went with an artist named Joel Shapiro, who is, is an abstract artist. Um, and in this case, he, 
he created the art for us and it was um, um, like um, woodblock prints. And I thought they were gorgeous and so emotional and so evocative of the themes of, of um, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And, uh, <laughs> and, the, and, and a lot of people love them, but then also some people really struggled with them. And I got um, from one synagogue called me to say that the books were all defective and that they had ink spots in the book. Like they, they literally didn't know what to do with this art and thought it was print a printer error. So, you know, it's just funny. I, I guess what I really mean to say, to correct what I just said at the beginning there, um, you know, some, some people are very visual, some people are very verbal, some people of course are both, um, but sometimes we really struggle. So for some, some people really struggle with poetry. Like they, they don't get language that isn't straightforward and concrete. Same with visual art. So it's not really an answer to your question. Um, but, um, but to me, vi visual expression is another form of metaphor. It's another form of poetry. And um, what I learned is that that's not the case for everybody. So that was an important lesson for me to learn there. Um, but anyway, that, that's really a digression. Um, so, um, so we've sort of defined poetry a little bit. And I would argue that prayer is exactly the same, right? Prayer is not, um, the, the words of our liturgy are poetic, right? They are, they're not uh, concrete in many cases. And if they are concrete, the, the concrete images are really metaphors for things that we can't express. Um, and poetry actually has a long history in, in our Jewish prayer book. So, and piyutim are liturgical poems. Uh, they go back, if you think of like Yehuda Halevi and Solomon Ibn Gabriel, like the, the, what they wrote are poems. And th today they're, they're old, right? They're ancient. And so we, we don't necessarily look at them as poetry, we look at them as prayer. Um, but they, in fact, are poetry. They're sort of poetic embellishments to the liturgy. And interestingly, the early reform prayer books in this country removed most of these PUTM in an attempt to streamline the prayer book, and they were considered sort of excess. And so they, they were taken out of our prayer book. Um, what's interesting today is that many of these ancient PUTM are being rediscovered and are finding their way back into our prayer books and also um, there, there's a whole movement of, um, of setting new music to these ancient PU team. It's a really interesting kind of development, um, liturgical development uh, in, in the modern age. So that's an interesting piece. But that is just to say that um, it is not an, a new thing to use poetry in our prayer books. In the early 1970s, modern poetry began to find its way first into the Reform Prayer Book and then into the Reconstructionist and Conservative Prayer Books. And also, I should say, we're not just talking about prayer books, we're also talking about other liturgical texts like the Haggadah. So you begin to see at that point contemporary poetry, which is to say the team were written to be used in a liturgical context. Contemporary poetry, the poems that are often finding their way into our prayer book were not. Right, so if you take, uh, and they're not even necessarily Jewish in origin. I mean, some are, some aren't. But you know, think about like a Walt Whitman poem, which crops up in our prayer book today, or a Pablo Neruda poem. Those were never meant to be used in a Jewish liturgical setting, of course. Um, but here they are, and so why? So we're going to talk a little bit about this. Um, 
Uh, rabbi Jacob Petakowski, who is a rabbi and scholar, wrote the following. Theology is compelled to rely on intimations. When we speak of something of which we only have hints and intimations, we can speak of it likewise only in hints and intimations. We can allude to it and we can suggest it, but we can hardly formulate it in propositions which will pass muster before the bar of logical rigor. We had therefore best express it in the images and nuances of poetry. So that's sort of a great framing um, from, from a, a magnificent scholar about why, um, why poetry speaks to the liturgical experience. Um, and any, if you have any thoughts or you know, anything you wanna add, just if you're shy to speak out, you can put it into the chat. Um, so let's think for a minute about what our liturgical metaphors are. Right, so this think about prayers that you know from whether it's Shabbat, weekday, high holidays, or the Haggadah. Um, we use metaphors and imagery that made sense in a particular time and place when they were first created, even if today they may feel sort of foreign to us. So let's think about what, what some of those metaphors and imagery are. I'm gonna suggest some, I would love to hear from you. Again, whether it's in the chat or just speaking up. So we call God, for example, and, and I'm trying to go as literal as possible here, but we call God king of the universe, right? God is a king. So we don't, we don't really know from kings, right? We, you know, it's not the metaphor we would use if we were going to be creating prayer today, probably because it's not, it's not a familiar thing in our lives, right? And, and um, thank you in the chat for adding, for Lauren added uh, king and father, and that's exactly right. We have also a Vinu Malkenu, right? Um, from the high holidays, which we're getting ready for. We have, um, you know, um, our father, our king, right? So that, that's the metaphor right there. What are other kinds of things that you can think of? What's, what's one of the, big metaphors for Yom Kippur, well, for the high holidays as a whole. Right, we talk about the book of life, right? Like, are we, you know, is that a literal book of life or are we using that as a metaphor to get to something that otherwise would be hard to kind of figure out how to talk about? Using that image gives us a way to talk about really the idea around that, right? We talk about um, God is a shepherd and we are the sheep, right? So that's, that's another way to use imagery. I mean, very few of us, I'm gonna just guess, are farmers today. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But in, a, in, an, in an agricultural world, that would have been a metaphor that made sense. We get it, sheep, shepherds, you know, who's in charge, who leads, who follows, right? Um, and today, you know, that's not necessarily a metaphor that speaks to us in the, in the way that it did in, in ancient times. <clears throat> so those are, those are just some of the liturgical metaphors that are familiar to us. What, what else might you add to that list? The opening of the gates, right? The gates themselves, gates, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. We don't live, for the most part, in a world that has gates, and maybe we do. Maybe you live in a gated community, <laughs> right? I don't know. But, you know, certainly we don't live in cities that are surrounded by gates the way that some were in the ancient world. 
right? But we still can understand the metaphor, you know, an open gate, a closed gate, we get it. What else? On Tishabab, there's definitely uh, Yerushalayim is an unfaithful wife and um, yeah. a completely broken, distraught person. That's right. Yeah, that's a good one. Complicated one. <laughs> yeah, the whole sort of God and Israel and, and uh, you know, what that relationship is, is really interesting. Lots of metaphors there. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? Okay. So I think one of the things that poetry does is it offers metaphors and imagery that really open doorways or open gates for us the same way that prayers can. So I would say doorways to feelings that we have that we want to express, feelings like gratitude, um, maybe thoughts or hopes for peace, hopes for healing, um, connection to the divine and so on. And both our liturgy and po poetry help us kind of open that door um, and allow us to express some of those feelings. I'm going to share a quote um, by Rabbi Shelley Martyr. Um, Rabbi Martyr was the editor and translator, one of the editors and translators of Mishkan HaNefesh, and also, uh, which is our Machsor, our High Holiday Prayer Book, and also Mishkan HaSeder, which is our new uh, Haggadah. And he wrote, Religious language, prayer language, can be a barrier. For diaspora Jews, that includes the additional barrier posed by Hebrew. And he's writing about the experience of both editing and translating the Moxor. As we thought about offering the reform movement a new Moxor that speaks to our many constituencies at once, including those who do not know Hebrew and especially those who struggle, or worse, have stopped struggling with belief in God, we realized that we needed to build bridges across the many streams of 21st century liberal Judaism. Poetry can be a bridge. So I, I love that, um, that idea because what he's really talking about is how the, the, the liturgy are sort of what may be for some of us our familiar comfortable liturgy is actually a barrier um, and that that poetry can help us kind of break through that, that barrier and approach the prayer in a way that <clears throat> that feels uh, more comfortable and, and makes more sense to who we are today as as modern people. Poems, I would argue, at least good poems. There are a lot of bad poems out there, but good poems are evocative. They're suggestive. They're open-ended. They don't tell us how we should feel or how we should think but they open up thinking and feeling in us, right? They don't preach at us, but they allow, they sort of allow us to be expansive and they ask questions rather than provide answers. Um, Rabbi Murder went on to write, um, poetry in the prayer book can make our liturgies more pastoral, more inviting and more intimate. So when we, did the work on any of these publications, and that includes Mishkan Tefillah, which is our, our standard prayer book. Um, I can't speak to the decisions made in that because I was not part of that process, but certainly uh, it uses a lot of poetry. And then that's continued in the Moxor and in the Haggadah. Um, 
our, our goal was to use poetry as contemporary team, as these kind of contemporary liturgical poems, even if they weren't written to be that, but really to use them as a bridge between what might be challenging um, liturgical imagery and people's contemporary lives, uh, with the idea that poetry can sort of pry open the historic liturgical text. And um, I, I think that that's the central task of all poetry in a prayer book, to help us make the language of prayer, which can be, as I said, abstract, alienating, remote, um, into something concrete, inviting, and deeply personal. Um, I, I think also there are sometimes poems that are theological. It's not just that the, the imagery may be foreign or distant to us, but sometimes it's the theology itself that feels, you know, kind of a barrier. Um, you know, we may not, as kind of contemporary people, be as willing to just um, say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, of course, that's what it says I should believe, that's what I believe. Like, I think we, that that is um, part of the mode of being a modern person is that we, we question, we, we struggle, we don't just say, oh, okay. And um, so again, sometimes the theology can be kind of an obstacle too in a text. And so, um, so all of this is kind of background to why um, certain, what, why poetry has become such a standard part, at least in the reform movement, but also, like I said, um, in the conservative and reconstructionist prayer books as well, um, so uh, ubiquitous today. So what I'd really like to do is look at some examples together. Um, I'm gonna share my screen, let's hope that works smoothly. And um, I am gonna ask you some questions, so please, you gotta, you gotta talk up here. Um, so we're gonna look first at, um, let's see. We're gonna look really at the English because I think that'll provide an easier conversation here among us. Um, but, um, but feel free to talk about the Hebrew if you want. So we're gonna look first, um, let me start screen sharing here. Um, Okay, are you seeing a prayer? Okay, <laughs> you're seeing a prayer, great. Okay, so um, this is from, um, this is from the Moxer from Mishkan and Nefesh. And um, what we have here, and I'll just kind of take you back up to the top just so you can see, it's what we call Gvorot, right? So, Atagibor Leolam Adonai Mechaye, and of course, because in the reform event, you know, we're not sure which way to go, or we give people options. So two different options, but here in the English, um, let's just take a look at this. So um, the prayer in many ways is about, um, I mean, just like you can't say poetry is about a certain thing necessarily, same with prayer, but let's, let's try to look at some of the themes. Um, it's talking about this sort of this life-giving power that God has. And if you look at the Hatima, the kind of signature line at the bottom, at the end of it, right, it talks about um, meaning, um, you know, God is the one who, who is responsible for life. And um, 
God is the kind of the power behind all life. And I think that um, for some people, maybe that's that that works really well, that speaks to them. Uh, maybe it's reassuring. I think for some people, there's a struggle with the concept of God having such a strong hand in everyday in the everyday functioning of the universe, especially I might suggest when they feel that God has not acted mercifully toward them. Um, I think that there can be really a, a theological uh, challenge here. And so what we uh, what we chose to do in this case, and this is a prayer that gets repeated a lot throughout the prayer book, so there are different ways that it's treated every time. <clears throat> but in this particular case, which is from uh, the Rosh Hashanah, I think it's, I would have to look, sorry. It's uh, Rosh Hashanah morning. Um, so if you look, if you were to look at the accompanying page, so this would be on the right hand side of the page, the left hand side of the page is the kind of the alternative or the, the poetic version. Um, and so if you look here, we have this poem by Alicia Ostreicher. She's a contemporary Jewish poet, American. And um, so I'll, I'll read this. Um, you have made everything wondrous after its kind. The X molecule hooks the Y molecule. Mountains rise with utmost gravity, snow upon their shoulders. A congress of crows circulate through the maze, whose sheen brightens through a breezeless morning. The ribbed leaf, a spot of scarlet, floats on the shivering creek. Each single thing so excellent in form and action whether by chance, by excitement, by intention. You draw along a dappled path, the wren to her nest, the fledglings cry, the lions flow rhythmically toward the antelope, the butterfly flicks yellow wings, the galaxies propagate light in boundless curves past what exists as matter, as dust. You have done enough, engineer. How dare we ask you for justice? So, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the juxtaposition of the two. What what is this conversation? What is this dialogue between the the sort of historic text and this poem? What's what's the conversation between them? Anyone want to jump in? So I will talk more if you're not going to jump in, but I really wish you would. Um, the poem is, I think, a very different feel than the prayer. Let's just go back to the prayer for a second. Okay, so your life-giving power is forever, Adonai, with us in life and death. God is central, right? God, it's about God, right? God is the source behind life and death. And this, this prayer, one of the reasons that we have the two... Um, these two different choices in the prayer is because it's so theologically complicated. Um, the early reformers, when they created the reform prayer book, they took out um, this phrase hametim, which has to do with God basically um, uh, giving life to the dead. Um, and they instead changed it to hakol, like God gives life to everything, right? That's a huge theological shift right there. And then in recent years, with the publication of Mishkan Tefillah, um, 
the option was put back in. So you can, so there's sort of this, this theological um, conversation that's running just through this prayer itself, right? Like, are, you know, are we, are we praying this way? Are we praying that way? And, and, you know, the early reformers were uncomfortable with this idea that God, it, because the, you could read the prayer as God sort of being the puppeteer, right? Like God, you know, you, you're going to live, you're going to die. I'm going to, um, I'm going to, um, um, give life-giving power here and I'm going to take it away here and I'm going to raise up the dead. And, you know, that the early reformers were very uncomfortable with that. It was, it was, um, not in keeping with the kind of rational approach of, of early reform Judaism. And so they made this significant theological change in the text. And then as moderns, uh, or not as, but as modern reform Jews, um, many have reclaimed that idea metaphorically of God raising the dead, not necessarily literally, but metaphorically. Um, but, but in any case, this, this prayer, it's very God-centered as most prayers are, right? And, um, and then, so the poem, completely different. So if the prayer is God-centered, what is the poem doing? And if you're, because I'm screen sharing, I can't actually see the chat right now. So please feel free to speak up. I can read you um, some of what's in there. So Lauren said she's not comfortable with the idea of an unjust God. Mm -hmm. And Lisa said the poem invokes the power of God rather than the mercy of God, like mm -hmm. chapter 38 of Job. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I see the poem as, you know, and there is no one right way to read it, right? But I see the poem as being more of a bird's eye view and sort of God not having, um, God like creating and um, um, activating, but not necessarily pulling the strings in the same way that, that maybe is implied in the prayer. Um, so, so the poem is sort of threading the needle differently. Now, to be fair, she didn't write this poem in response to the prayer, right? We're, we, the editors, just um, found there to be a dialogue between the two. Tara, but yes, in the prayer, God fixes things. Mm. <laughs> in the poem, you're an observer of the realities of what life is. Yes, I love that. That's great, right? very different and very. and it also uh rabbi person i think it invites uh the that last line uh it's like you know well who are we to be like you know asking you for justice you know mm -hmm. i kind of feel like it's a tap on the shoulder uh for us is like okay well where where do we fit into it into this creation yeah yeah i mean that's such an interesting last um cup couplet there you've done enough engineer how dare we ask you for justice like you've you've created a, you've given us all of this you've given us this incredible gift but it's up to us what we do with it and um and that's a very different take than than in the prayer right so it's much more like we have this responsibility you know i think this goes more to the idea of partnership with god like you've given us the raw tools now it's up to us what we actually do with them and make meaning out of them. And it's up to us to ask, to act justly. Um, so um, that's, that's one example right there. I'm gonna 
go, unless anyone has anything else, I'm gonna go to the next. Example. Yeah, if I can say something like further about not being comfortable with yeah. the even unjust God, if we're, yeah. we're created in the image God, it's really as, as, as I see it, as co-creators, um, emulating the 13 me dot, you know, being just, uh, having rachamim, you know, slow to anger and all that. So to say, well, we shouldn't expect justice from you, is kind of saying like, well, we shouldn't expect justice from ourselves. I, I think theologically there's a problem there. I think one can still say, okay, I don't see justice in the world, but that's because humans have the freedom. But if we emulated God, we would be just because God is just. Mm -hmm. that, that's why I say what I said. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I think that there's also a, a, a different idea that could be read here, which is not that God is unjust, right? Or that God, you know, perpetrates injustices, but that God is just neutral. That God sort of creates and then lets the world spin on and doesn't get involved, good or bad. Um, and you know, that, that's a very different, obviously very different theological take than the idea that God is justice and that God activates all justice in the world. Um, and that's, I think, a struggle right there. That's a big struggle. Um, you know, how we see God's role in justice and how we see God's role in the world at all. Um, so I think you, you pointed out something really important there and really complicated. Well, it's terrifying if you think about it deeply. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right, I'm gonna take us to a different, I think I have to unshare and reshare, so hold on. Thank you. Um, okay, let's see. I'm gonna go to, um, let's see if this is it. Yeah, okay. Um, so we're gonna take a look at something related to Colonidre. Um, Okay, so um, what we decided to do, you know, Kulnadre also can be one of the, the, the texts of Kulnadre can be one of those barriers also. The idea um, that, um, you know, all the, all the themes of forgiveness and oaths and promises um, can be challenging. What we decided to do was keep the text intact um, but to bracket it, kind of frame it in, in a few different ways. So this immediately follows what you're seeing here um, is the right hand side of the page immediately following the actual Konidre text. Um, but it's it's pretty standard historic text. All shall be forgiven the entire community of Israel and the stranger who lives in their midst for all have gone astray in error. Moses prayed to God, as you have been faithful to this people ever since Egypt, please forgive their failings now in keeping with your boundless love. And God responded, I forgive as you have asked. Okay, so that hopefully is fairly familiar to a lot of us. Um, and then, um, so on the opposite page, we have a poem here. We're gonna, there are two poems, but we're gonna look at the one on the top called Kul Nidre. It is by uh, Nan Cohen. Um, a contemporary Jewish poet also, but again, not written to be in the prayer book. Um, my neighbor's roses are blooming, blooming. Their perfume spills past me and into the street. 
The world gives us so much without being asked. But again and again, we break our We breathe, eat, sleep away the glittered nights, spend the tapestried days. These broken promises, let them be forgotten. Our sworn oaths unswear. They drop noiseless on the earth, become the earth. So let's talk about that conversation. Any thoughts about how this poem interacts with, you know, coming right after Colnidre? What do you think? Very human-centered again, um, not not God-centered, um, but gets I think more into the idea of human experience. Um, life life offers us so much. What do we do with it? And so instead of of um, framing it around, you know, this is what we have to do for God or because God tells us to. Um, this is what we need to do with this great gift that we've been given, right? We, we, we sleep away the glittered night, the glittering nights, spend the tapestry days. So it's kind of a reminder, like you have to really grab life. You have to make the most of it and not just sleep it away. Um, that's, I mean, that's one reading obviously. Um, and you have another chance, like let, let the broken promises be forgotten or oaths be unsworn. Um, and they go back into the earth. They're not there to um, keep you from going forward. They're not obstacles for you. Um, so that, but that's just one reading. I would love to hear your thoughts. We can go back to the original for a second, right? I mean, here it's it's really about our relationship with God here, and in the poem, it's about I think our relationship with with ourselves and the world around us, our choices and how we live our lives. Um, what do you think? Any thoughts on any of that? No. I, th I think I, I think the I think the earth is ra rather forgiving as well. Um, that uh, mm -hmm. um, and you know and in that way um, you know non judgmental uh so it's a uh, so there there is some comfort in that uh mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a very forgiving poem uh, <laughs> because it, it does tell us to to live more consciously perhaps or more intentionally but it is forgiven forgiving right the you know dropping noiselessly into the earth becoming the earth is is kind of comforting and you know it doesn't it doesn't hold us back from moving forward um and there aren't going to be terrible punishments like we just it gets reabsorbed back into the earth and we get to move on lisa i see you're unmuted did you have anything to add to that well, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking, um, I was trying to draw like um, th those first lines and the last lines kind of really draw me in. So my neighbor's roses are blooming, blooming, and, but our promises uh, drop noiseless on the earth and they become the earth. And then 
then perhaps, you know, there are seeds to help us bloom again in a different way as, as, as our neighbor's roses are blooming, blooming. You know, that, that idea of seed and earth and renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, That's uh, really nice, yeah. And you know, also- that hopefully Col Nidre uh, uh, <laughs> may help us with. Yeah, and I love that. And it goes to the kind of cyclical nature of Yom Kippur. Like here we are yet again, you know, we're doing this again. Um, and we get to keep trying and we get to keep rebirthing and, and trying to, to do it better. Um, yeah, that's really nice. But it's also going to be the rose petals that drop onto the earth. Mm-hmm. So you're, deal- you're dealing with acknowledgement that you're temporary. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Yeah, right. They're so beautiful. They have this gorgeous perfume. <clears throat> and then they too go back into the earth, right? And then they rebloom again. So, yeah. Well, not them, the new well, ones. The new, the one, new right? ones. But the plant does, right? Yes. Plant. Yeah, well. Yeah, no, that's, that's nice. Yeah, that's good. I liked Rabbi Linder's point about forgiveness. And so I guess that's why they call it Mother Earth or in the sense of, you know, God being the father. Um, I liked that idea of this being a forgiving season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Thank you. Um, okay, let's see. Let me, I'm going to go to the Haggadah and uh, change things up just a little bit here. I'm going to stop sharing. Um Okay, I'm going to show you, I'm going to share one that's got a kind of a different, uh, a different kind of dialogue, I think. Let's see. Okay, um, so this is our new Haggadah. It's called Mishkan Hasefer. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> Mishkan Haseder. And um, so here we use poetry, at least in this particular case, a little bit differently. So. Um, this is in the um, the Karpas part of the Haggadah, so it's it's the blessing over the parsley, the greens rather, and um, so we have this beautiful uh, section from Song of Songs. Off, off then we'll go early to the vineyards to see if the vine is in flower, if its buds have opened, if pomegranates are in bloom. There, my love will be yours, and that's pretty standard that we have a Song of Song text in this uh, part of the, the the liturgical flow of the Haggadah. And now here we have the blessing over the greens. And it's a very familiar piece of the Seder, right? Source of blessing, sovereign God of eternity, the fruit of the earth is your creation, right? And then we, we eat our parsley or our greens um, and we, we dip it and so on. Um, so it's, it's on the one hand, it's very familiar. What we wanted to do is create a, a, a conversation with the poem that opens up something that is so familiar. I would not say that this is, I mean, compared to some of our other imagery, um, some of our other metaphors, this isn't necessarily the most challenging um, imagery that we have. Um, it's fairly familiar and known and, um, you know, we just say it and then we eat our greens. So we wanted to actually take that moment and make it a little bigger, um, make it 
sort of add some meaning and not have us just like go over it because it's so familiar. So, um, so the intention's a little bit different here, but um, we there are two pieces here on the opposite page. I'm gonna look at this poem, Instructions on Not Giving Up by Ada Limon, who's a contemporary poet, not Jewish, um, was a little bit surprised to find her poem in a Haggadah, but was delighted by it. Um, and it's also a poem personally that I, th this Haggadah just came out this spring in time for Passover. Uh, we worked on it, we worked on it for quite a few years, but we worked on it, we finished it during the pandemic. And this is a poem that uh, actually meant a particular, um, it was particularly meaningful to me during this time. Um, we can talk about that. But so instructions on not giving up. More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crabapple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display of cherry limbs, shoving their cotton candy colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains. It's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy, the world's baubles and trinkets leave the pavement strewn with the confetti of aftermath, the leaves come, patient plotting a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us, a return to the strange idea of continuous living, despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine then, I'll take it, the tree seems to say. A slick, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist to an open palm, I'll take it all. So thoughts about the poem, thoughts about the juxtaposition. Why would we use this poem in a Haggadah? Anything there? Is this um, trying to make the Haggadah more an idea about springtime and to take away the whole Jewish history from it? I mean, I find a lot of this liturgy is, and I'm not saying this to be disrespectful. I have to be more than orthodox, but but I almost see it as like a do a de Judaizing of it so that a non-Jew would be perfectly comfortable and understand it. Am I wrong? Is is that the intention? <laughs> No, that's not the intention. Um, like I said at the beginning, the the we're not um, replacing the liturgy; we're supplementing the liturgy so that the the poems become uh, just another way in. So for people who may not be familiar with the liturgy, with the themes, may not be uncomfortable with them, or may not be sorry comfortable with them, the poems um, provide another way in, but they also help expand the liturgy itself. So while on this page, you know, on on the preceding page, we have the, the familiar blessing over the fruit of the earth, which we could just say and, and dip our parsley and move on. Um, or we can actually also, not instead of, but also read this poem and, and it imbues the um, moment perhaps with even more intentionality, even more meaning. So it's not it's not instead of of its and it's a kind of contemporary commentary if you will um perhaps and um i'd love to hear from you from any of you um what what you think about the poem or what what the poem has to do with this moment in the haggadah and you know this is just one page of the haggadah so there's certainly the historical pieces all throughout the haggadah but this one particular piece about karpas about the greens about spring about this moment um, of springtime and renewal. Any other thoughts? 
so uh, I'll say that for me, this this poem spoke so deeply to me, especially during this year, this idea of like, fine, then I'll take it, you know, um, sorry, a return to the strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. I think that there's so much about Passover that is about that turning, that, you know, they're the turning away from hurt, from trauma, from, um, from painful experiences and moving into the springtime, moving into hope, moving into newness, into greenness. Um, and to me, this this poem really spoke to that. Um, I'll take it, I'll take it all. Like, yes, just like I, I am moving forward um, with hope, with new inspiration. I'm, I'm ready for that. Um, and, and that feels like, I mean, the pandemic aside, that feels like just so, so much about Passover. Um, you know, that, that it is about history and it's about hope and it's about going forward and it's about turning. Um, so, uh, happy to hear any thoughts if there's anything else. Okay. So I think I'm supposed to stop and let you ask questions. So I, I have many more things, examples to show you, but I will stop and uh, happy to take questions, thoughts. Yeah, I've got a quick quick question. Hi. Hello, Rabbi. It's always, always good to see you. And um, what, how, as we prepare, as congregations prepare for holidays, whether it's Passover or High Holidays or whatever, what is the value of having exercises where congregants write poems? Mm. Uh, how can this become part of our preparing uh, ourselves for this? Uh, it's wonderful to to, to uh, read poetry, but but I personally like to write poetry, even though I never share it with anybody. <laughs> Hi, Alan. Um, that's great. I love that idea because to me, the more we can engage in all different kinds of ways with the liturgy, the better. Right. The more we can make it ours, the more we can grapple with it, the more we can try to like get inside of it and really understand what it's about historically, what it might mean for us, what it what it's about spiritually, what it's asking from us, what what might have been the mindset. I mean, we don't have answers, but we can think of questions like what might have been the mindset of those who originally composed it? You know, what why is it even in our prayer book? Like all of that I think is so important because it helps us draw close and really um, make the prayers our own. So I encourage any way to do that. And, um, you know, writing your own poems in response to liturgy, I, I love that idea. Um, you know, Rabbi Linder talked earlier about visual imagery. Um, you know, we've done exercises where we have people go out and um, take photographs to uh, that express something about one of the prayers and then you sort of weave those together and now you've got like this visual prayer book i mean not just just as an exercise um you know that's a really great thing to do so i would say the more the better um you know i i think for too many of us the liturgy is too distant and not ours we don't own it so anything that we can do to um to draw close to it and to make it our own the better thank you um just to answer that a little bit i, I took part last year um, in a program with, I don't know if you've read any of the liturgy by Alden, A-L-D-E-N Solovey, who's amazing. I met him when I lived in Yerushalayim um, and his books of liturgy I'm are his wonderful. Publisher. 
Oh, isn't he wonderful? <laughs> and anyway, I mean, that's really worth learning this stuff. Um, but he did a, a series last week, last year, on doing our own, um, a bit of our own liturgy, our own poems for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And then he had us write our own vidui. That was really powerful. That's Writing lovely. your own vidui yep. makes it so personal, but yep. also include for the good that we've done as well as yeah. for the bad, which Absolutely. gives a new, a, a different feeling to it. And thank you for publishing uh, Alden's stuff. It's awesome. Thank you for reading it. That's great to know. Yeah, no, he's he's phenomenal. And um, we actually have in Mishkan and Nefesh, we have um, exactly what you're talking about, like not just, um, you know, some, some new contemporary liturgy, which is about the good that we've done as well as, you know, our tradition, of course, has us name all the bad things that we've done. But um, but we also have included that now as well. Yeah, thank you. What else? Nothing. Well, I will tell you. Um, so at the beginning, again, I keep coming back to the question that you asked uh, Rabbi Linder about the visual, because obviously it's something that I do think a lot about and it's not it wasn't the um, the the topic of this conversation today. But um, when I think also about the Haggadah, this this new Haggadah Mishkana Seder, in addition to the poetry, we have some beautiful art um, by Toby Khan, which again is is abstract and it is kind of um, poetic. You know, I um, so if you're interested in sort of how visual imagery works, uh, as well as you know poetry and um, liturgical texts, I would just urge you to take a look. This is just one example. This is um, the piece that we use from Toby for so we have um, art for each of the sections of the Haggadah and this one is um, for the section that begins the 10 plagues and I, I find his art to be incredibly again evocative and poetic um, you know metaphoric and so on um, so if you're interested in that I would really encourage you to go have a look at uh, Mishkan HaSeder so love to take I think we have time for one or two more questions but you guys are you're shy, but I'm so grateful for the uh, for the questions that you did uh, share and the thoughts that you shared. Oh, Hara, I know I noticed in most of the newer newer prayer books there's poetry as well as as the liturgy, and um, is that um, a, a fairly modern um, phenomenon, or is this something I haven't been observing before? Um, yeah, so I, I did address this at the very beginning. It's um, it's both ancient and new. So um, I talked at the beginning about PUTIM. There's a long tradition in, in our uh, liturgical history of liturgical poems um, all throughout Jewish history. There's If you look up the word PUTIM and do a little research, you'll find some beautiful, beautiful poetry um, from, you know, generations way back. And, but the, the adding of contemporary poetry is, is relatively new. It's from about the 70s when, when the reform movement started doing that and then the reconstructionist and conservative movements as well. So relatively contemporary.
and anything else. No. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, listening and talking and sharing your thoughts. Great to see and hear from you. And really thank my you. honor to be part of this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Person. This was very rich and um, left us with a lot to think about. Uh, thank you for this brilliant presentation. Thank you, Rabbi Linder, Peter Pishko. Thank you, thank you, uh, Temple Sold Out for all your partnership. Thank you all who joined us and participated. I know poetry is kind of a slow thinking for me, so it's kind of an internalizing and a process, processing. It's less kind of the back and forth debate. So I know uh, some folks were less participatory than usual, but we appreciate all of you who joined and participated uh, passively or actively. Rabbi Linder, anything to add there? No, just thanks. Good to be in your orbit, Rabbi Person. Good to be in yours as well. Thank you. So nice uh, to see you. Have a great day, everyone. Nice Thanks to so see you all. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah.